Hey everyone, thanks for joining our spaces. This is presented to you by Macrovisor, where we make macro easier and actionable for everyone. We're gonna talk a little bit about US CPI, what the data means and why it's important. But before we get started, I'd like to welcome my co-host Aisha. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. So we're not gonna to be too long. Uh, most of us saw the CPI numbers already. Uh, we're just going to go through some of the items, what they mean, what we think about them, and how they affect the markets. Absolutely. And it was uh, an interesting market reaction that we saw. I'm going to just talk a little bit about that first. Going into today, we had pretty significant evidence of hedging in vols for today being raised and we saw a pretty good amount of put exposure, particularly at the 4100 strike. That's really where the most open interest was going into today. And so it's normal when you get data that isn't as bad as it could be to see a reaction, particularly right as the data is being released, that is the removal of those hedges. So that huge spike we saw in S&P futures that was almost 50 points trough to peak was a lot of that removal of hedging and then also algorithmic traders trading on that data. So seeing that getting faded by the market, particularly during the cash session, is a logical reaction. The data wasn't bad. It wasn't great. It, it kind of came in in between. Aisha, you want to talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in the numbers? Sure. So I think um, the best news is that we now have a four in front of the CPI number. And I think that's something that we were all looking for. Um, it, it's a big deal when we change for, when we change the main number, right? So when we go from five to 4.9, even though it's a 0.1% difference. But the one thing that we should note though, is that there has been a slight acceleration overall in the CPI numbers. So if you look at the March month on month number, it was 0.1, which is, you know, absolutely fantastic. Although we'd love to see it at a negative number, which would bring down um, inflation faster. We didn't get that, but we got it at 0 0.1, which is great. This time around, what we're seeing is a 0 0.4 number on both the core and the headline inflation. So while this did bring down inflation a little bit, I think if we had seen a slightly more um, like a slightly lesser number, we probably would have seen the headline inflation fall further. But uh, so far as uh, food is concerned, and I think let's let's start to get into some of the categories here. So food, we saw a zero percent increase in food inflation overall. We saw food at home come down by minus point two and food away from home come down to 0.4. So overall, we're seeing uh, a deceleration there, which is great. So disinflation is going on. In fact, food at home groceries is seeing a deflation, which is zero point, minus 0.2%. And I think this sort of takes away the pain from a lot of you know areas. Now, what's interesting is within food, however, we did see uh, carbonated drinks go up, so good news for Pepsi and Coke. Um, and we saw some of the raw materials and foods go up. So, for example, protein prices did go up, beef prices went up, uh, vegetable prices went up, and uh, baby food prices went up. So some of these odd numbers are here and there, 
But overall, I think it's a good sign that food inflation still remains at zero. It is. And I think it's important also just to note how this data really impacts consumers. There are some um, there's some degree of relief happening when there's actual deflation, right? Because we're seeing prices drop month over month. But when there's disinflation, the pain is just being slightly reduced month over month. That is to say, prices remain high. They're just rising at a slower rate. There are still cumulative impacts from that that need to be considered. And consumers are still showing signs of stress. We've got 40% of consumers that are behind on their bills and two-thirds living to paycheck to paycheck. And recently, I believe um, there was a couple of news publications that ran a headline. And we've seen this before, but it's getting a bit worse. It used to be that most consumers didn't have $1,000 in their rainy day fund. Now, most don't even have $400 in their rainy day fund. So there's some stress um, underneath the surface there. But overall, we're seeing some positive signs and at least the velocity of inflation decelerating a bit within food, which is one of the bigger costs that consumers face. On the other side, of we did see energy go up. And this is a theme that we've been talking about a bit with the recovery in oil prices after that OPEC plus price cut that caught a lot of shorts off sides. We saw oil rise from the mid 60s all the way up to the low 80s. Now we've settled back down in the 70s. But the damage was kind of done with oil hanging out in the upper end of that range boosting gasoline prices and causing a little bit of a acceleration in month over month energy pricing. And that's another larger outlay for consumers. Everyone's filling up their car with gas. There's pass through effects. We saw transportation costs go up as well during the same time. So it's a bit of a balancing act. We have some relief in food. We have some more pressure in energy. Yes, and unfortunately, where energy is concerned, it wasn't just gasoline, um, you know, for the cars, but as well as energy services. So we did see disinflation in energy services, or rather deflation, because it was a negative number. So just just to take a step back and make this very clear, disinflation is when the number is coming down, but but it's still positive. Deflation is when the number actually goes negative. So negative inflation is deflation. So we did see deflation in energy services. Unfortunately, there was a slowdown there. So that was boosting up, um, you know, energy quite a bit. So electricity, utilities, this actually did um, give people a lot of grief. Uh, But that sort of is slowing down again, which is not a really good sign. But I, I suspect that has to do again with, oil prices, heating oil, gas gas prices reaccelerating a little bit over the last month. Right. So next up, we have the core inflation, which is inflation, less food and energy. Now here, I think the biggest number or the biggest change we saw was in the used car and trucks. Interestingly enough, I thought this would come last month because as we were tracking the Mannheim index, we saw the Mannheim index actually accelerate I believe it was January and February when we saw it accelerate. And usually there's like a two to three month time lag for when the Mannheim index translates into CPI numbers. So I thought we'd see that in April for the March numbers. Uh, We didn't, but looks like it's showing up now. And we saw used cars and trucks go up 4.4%. And that's like the reddest number I have on my heat map. So That's not great um, because if this is the January's number translating into April, that means we still have 
um, you know, a couple of more months of, you know, uh, acceleration in inflation where used cars and trucks are concerned. Uh, next up, we have apparel. Apparel, for some reason, apparel shot up a lot in January and February. I think, you know, with um, it's, it's weird because you would think that people were discounting to get rid of inventory, but that's not exactly what happened. Perhaps some people were actually increasing some prices in order to sort of, um, you know, offset the discounts they were giving in other places. So apparel basically, as you all know, is seasonal, right? So what they do is what's in season, they will mark that up. And then what's out of season, they'll mark that down. And that's how they sort of manage their inventory. So in order to offset the markdown, which had to be more severe because they had overordered, they sort of marked up apparel a little bit more, the in-season goods. Um, so, but we're seeing that coming down a little bit. Um, it's still, you know, accelerating, which is odd because I, I don't think people are spending as much on discretionary items, but it would seem that there's still some buying going on there. Um, and then, of course, we had other services. Uh, we had medical care commodities. Now, this is something that, you know, we highlighted even during our discussion on earnings when we covered healthcare earnings that pharmaceuticals were going up. And one of the reasons that pharmaceuticals are going up is because of the changes made during the Inflation Reduction Act. So what that does basically is, uh, you know, stops pharmaceuticals or pharmaceutical companies, drug manufacturers from increasing their prices. So what these guys did is they started increasing their prices early on before that, you know, before the act comes into play so that, you know, later on they're not stuck and um, they're not forbidden from, you know, increasing prices. So that's why we saw some acceleration in drug drugs and uh, pharmaceuticals. You know, going back to the used cars for a second, I think it's an interesting area to see a price uh, rise. I know that auto sales have recovered a bit, but on the other side of it, one point that you had made in the past is that we're seeing more delinquencies. We're seeing rising stress of consumer credit in that area of used cars. And I would think that uh, seeing prices rise here is, is it's a little bit interesting. Do you want to talk just a little bit about what you saw with some of the used car credit issuers like Ally? And doesn't it seem like maybe there should be less credit being issued for folks that are buying used cars? Absolutely. So the thing is with used cars, um, People who buy used cars, unfortunately, their credit scores uh, tends to be lower, right? So if you have a high credit score and you can afford a new car, you wouldn't exactly be going to buy a used car. So, but during you know the period of time when we had a glut and we couldn't get new vehicles, at that time, a lot of used cars were actually purchased instead. And... So the average credit score for Ally and for um, credit, credit Acceptance Corp kind of went down, right? So these guys have started to see delinquencies rise. Um, they are going to see charge-offs rise as well. In fact, we heard from Ally, I don't remember what uh, Credit Acceptance reported, but I know Ally reported 
uh, kind of ugly numbers. And we do see that, you know, their charger rates are going up there. So it sounds like over time that should also help to drag prices lower a bit because there would be less demand since there's less credit issuance. And so there should be less sales as a result of that. So it seems like maybe the used car pricing that we have some pass through left, but maybe that's to, to forgive me for using a tired term, a bit transitory. Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> and then looking into shelter, which is the biggest area of core services and really the largest waiting in CPI, it's, it's over a third of CPI. The biggest relief we saw there was lodging away from home. When we look at rental of primary residence, it actually accelerated month over month from 0.5% last month to 0.6% in the current uh, April's data. But that's not something that you necessarily see looking at the top line data. We do also see home prices are stable and rising in many regions. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that people don't want to move. If you've got a mortgage that's two and a half, three, three and a half percent, and if you move, you're going to be resetting to six, six and a half, maybe seven percent, depending on your credit score. That's not a tempting offer. It means you've got less buying power for a new home unless you're moving a ton of equity from A to B. You also have an environment where we see office space utilization is at record lows. So what does that tell you? It tells you that hybrid and remote work are still very much in play, which means people have less motivation to move because in many vocations, they simply do not have to do so. So existing homes, the supply of those has been rather low. That's helped to keep prices a bit higher. It's sort of an interesting consequence of such a fast and aggressive rate hiking cycle where Powell had actually, for the first time of any Fed head, talked about a housing bubble. And yet he doesn't seem to be able to prick that bubble. Home builders continue to add to supply of new homes, but their pipeline of projects has fallen year over year. We've seen the uh, backlog of orders fall as much as 80% for some of these home builders. So while they're still producing, they're not producing as much. And it's a bit of a quandary. There's a mismatch here. And it really has everything to do with folks are just standing pat. They're not as willing to move when it's not advantageous. Perhaps if the rate hiking cycle was a bit slower, they would have had more time to acclimate to that and to plan for it. But it's not. We are where we are. And this could be an issue that causes the housing uh, correction to maybe play out over a period of one or two or maybe three years rather than something over a period of months. And that then leads to shelter not necessarily falling as much as one might want to see in core services because home prices are staying stable and rising. And a big part of that shelter calculation is owner's equivalent rent, which is not only delayed, half of the waiting is what, six to nine months old, but the current readings are continuing to build as well. So that's something to, to take into consideration since CPI is so weighted towards shelter, and we're not really seeing those costs go down, particularly in single-family homes. Correct. So the owner's equivalent rent is still about 8.1% year-on-year, which is, you know, significantly high. And um, I think the biggest funny that you, you did point this out earlier that the biggest decline in shelter inflation actually this time came from uh, hotels and motels. So over the last, what, I think three, four months, 
all we've been seeing is a month-on-month acceleration in hotel pricing and room rates and stuff like that. And you can see that with, you know, all the hotels that actually reported, they reported fabulous numbers because, you know, year on year, um, they've been able to charge more, their room rates have gone up. Now, there's also a little bit of an interesting point here that you know, last year around this time, we had we still had the effects of Omicron and, you know, COVID. So the comps there are also a little easy. I mean, it's, you know, skewed because of the comparisons, right? Having said that, this time around, uh, what we see for April is a negative 3.4 number, negative 3.4% um, for hotels, which means exactly what these guys said on the conference call and quite possibly what you heard, uh, you know, Airbnb say yesterday that, you know, people have stopped booking as much. They had a fabulous first quarter, but then they don't know what's, you know, what's in store for them. most of the hotels said the same thing. They don't know what's in store for the rest of the year. And they are seeing um, from April onwards, they are seeing uh, spending decline. They are seeing bookings decline. And that's exactly what Airbnb as well said. So I think this is, I mean, the interesting thing about the CPI is although we get it later, we we hear about all these things in bits and pieces. And it's quite interesting to put them all together and see the effect that they, you know, what has affected the CPI and the effect this CPI will have on companies going forward. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, because there was a lot of pent up travel spending. A lot of families had not done as much travel as they wanted to. So there was a lot of that built up in the pipeline. And there's some chance that we're starting to see maybe that revenge spend trend peak and roll off a bit when it'll be very interesting to what we see um, in the second quarter of this year, because this is really a part of peak travel season. You know, you have all the way from May through August. This is where most families are traveling. And if we don't see that strength in travel, that could be another area of evidence just showing that the consumer's not doing quite as well, that they don't have the discretionary funds to outlay into it. And one bit of evidence that they're struggling is that credit card debt for the first time in history has risen over a trillion dollars. And a lot of that credit card spending is on necessities. It's not as much on discretionary. We see that in data from Citigroup and Bank of America. We also see it in retail sales. So I think it's important to take into consideration that there's some evidence underneath the surface here that consumers are borrowing to maintain their lifestyle rather than borrowing as they had through prior periods to buy what is more discretionary, whether it's a service like travel or whether it's a large you know, screen TV, we're seeing some of that really level off. And that's a trend that's worth watching in the context of an economy that's really driven by consumption and particularly higher margin consumption in discretionary areas like travel and goods. So something we'll be paying attention to and talking about more as the quarter goes on in Visor. And just for everyone out there to be aware, uh, we're going to be doing a questions and answers session coming up shortly here because we want to talk to people that are out there and We realize there's a lot of moving parts in the economy and even in this inflation data. So we want to encourage people to, uh, you know, 
think of anything that they'd like to ask us about those areas so that we can try to provide some information here. We really enjoy unpacking this data and going through it and talking about it. And so that's really one of our core missions at Macrovisor is to look at the macro, make it easier, make it more accessible and make it more actionable. And uh, I thought another thing, Aisha, that was very interesting was seeing domestic services for households rising 6.9% month over month. That's the highest reading we had seen in really, I think, since February's data. Going back to January, it was actually 9.5%. But there seems like that's a pretty big area. And it, it feels to me like a chunk of that is that wage inflation or the increasing costs of having people on. And that's something when you take into consideration some of the other areas where prices are indeed rising, it does put some stress on consumers because more people are working more than one job, right, to try to make ends meet, which means that they're more likely to bring in people to help with cleaning and other sorts of stuff at home. And this is further compressing that household budget. So it's an area of stress to continue keeping an eye on. Right. So let me put it in Powell's word. Um, core services X housing basically has been going up. So if you look at the year on year numbers and you look at the month on month numbers, we're seeing some of this heating up uh, quite a bit. So what you mentioned, domestic services, but we also have things like vet services, dental services, hospital services, uh, tuition schools, fees. So all of these legal services, funeral services, all of these are still going up. So it's exactly what he was talking about, which he says is sticky, right? So X housing, core services, X housing. And unfortunately, this also gives like a rise to wages. And we're seeing that in the unemployment report where we see average, you know, wages tick up a little bit. We've seen the employment cost index stay up and sticky and that's 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 a big problem because you have um we also got uh, productivity numbers a day before the unemployment numbers which most people don't pay attention to but productivity actually fell minus 2.7% if i'm not mistaken and when productivity falls you can't sustain such a high level of services. So on the one hand, this is good news because it means the services inflation is going to dissipate. It is going to come down. But on the other hand, it also means that wages are coming down. And if inflation remains sticky in some of the other areas like housing, shelter, uh, energy, food, um, then people are going to have an even tougher time paying for the other products and the other services that are out there. And we got the NFIB small business uh, sentiment survey recently, which also small business owners, they expressed concern about productivity, about what their labor, what they were paying for was able to do. They were also expressing concerns about what they're paying for labor and inflation overall. While they still plan to hire, hiring plans have been tamped down. We can see a little bit of that in the JALTS data as well, where the number of open jobs has fallen quite a bit, particularly in transportation and construction and travel and leisure. And I think that the, the non-farm payrolls data we got on Friday was a little bit skewed by birth-death ratio adjustments as well as seasonal adjustments. It, it portended to a better number than perhaps what was really going on. And one of the other areas that may be of a bit concern is when you look at the data from the prior month, they actually revised that job bill down by about 100,000 jobs. 
So the revisions are something that are really important to pay attention to here. The strength in the labor market is usually the last thing that we start to see erode before we see economic weakness. And there are some signs that we are starting to see that. So I think that's of concern. One last area I wanted to discuss was just the Fed funds futures reaction to the data that we got today. So far, we're seeing a reaction where yesterday's probability of the Fed standing pat or not hiking, not cutting at the June meeting that's coming up on the 14th. So it's just about a month away. Yesterday's probability was 78.77%. Today's probability is 91.51%. So what that's telling us is that as the market looks at the CPI data, they see less reason for the Fed to hike again next month. That may indicate that there's a pause. But remember, the Fed did say very clearly that they're more driven by data. And we do have Powell repeatedly saying that his particular area of concern in inflation is core services, which remained pretty high. I want to say it was about 6.7, 6.8% in this year-over-year reading. And that's still unacceptably high. They're really looking for that number to come down pretty meaningfully. So there's still room for them, not necessarily to have to hike, but to keep rates at a high level to keep running off the balance sheet up to $95 billion a month because they're looking to try to really squash demand as much as they can. And the only tool they have to do that is to try to tighten in aggregate financial conditions. And we're seeing some progress on the sense of credit issuance is dropping, more so for small and medium-sized businesses, but we're seeing credit conditions tighten for consumers as well. And that's likely to have an impact that translates back to where we started this in the labor market. More businesses are going to have a tougher time maintaining uh, their employment if they're funded more by debt. And unfortunately, that does lead to the idea that there'll be less job openings and there will be more jobs being lost. So we are kind of heading down a path where, yes, inflation's likely on a trend that is lower and lower over time, but it's going to be with a lot of fits and starts along the way. It's not a straightforward trajectory to the downside. And that resilience in shelter and some of the upward pressure in energy has given this, this month's reading, or really April's data, a little bit of cause for concern. But we need to see whether these are things that start to ameliorate over time or not. So with that all being said, we'd love to open up for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and request to speak. And we'll get to you um, as, as we can. And um, I see, Michael, you have your hand up here. And I just want to thank everyone for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. There will be a recording of this spaces available for folks to listen to later. Michael, what's on your mind? What's your question? Well, I think uh, probably it's really old-fashioned, but probably the most important chart in the world to watch right now uh, is, the, is what's the action in the transports. And it looks like they're breaking down. And so, you, I mean, it's old-fashioned because, you know, everybody follows the S&P right now. But I think it's still extremely germane to what's actually happening, because unless we're teleporting stuff, um, you know, transporting stuff from point A to point B is important. And it's interesting to see the Dow hold up and the transports break down here, and they seem to have some overhead resistance, something merit, merits watching, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I would also go so far as to say that a lot of the stuff that's being transported is either coming from manufacturing or farms or otherwise. We can look at ISM manufacturing and we can see new orders continue to decline. 
we can see that overall the index is in a uh, is in contraction and uh, even supplier inventories and deliveries and backlogs of orders are all falling, which suggests that there's less need for transportation. So I think you make a good point. Watching the transports is important on a stock price level. And also the macro data that feeds into that is also important. Aisha, curious of your thoughts on this as well. First, right. So, Michael, all, what, what you say. Um, it's a great uh, Thank you. Thank you. But, Michael, what you say old-fashioned, I would say uh, tried and tested, right? So there's a reason that people look at these things and they haven't gone out of style. It's because they are important. And um, so I'll just speak to it a little bit from the company's perspective. So what we heard from some of the transport companies who reported earlier um, in the quarter, what they said was, they're experiencing something called a freight recession. So basically, they had a lot of, you know, um, freights were high. We, we, we know this, right? So they were at an all-time high, and now they're dropping like crazy. So this basically tells you two things, that exactly as Mayhem said, that there's no demand for goods, manufacturing is coming down, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it also tells you that, you know, I think going forward, um, we're not likely to see this pick up anytime soon, which is why even the contracted rates are gradually coming down. So the other thing I want to say as well is watch the trains. So watch the railroads, right? So when you see trucking coming down, you'll see trucking coming down much faster than you'll see the railroads coming down. And this is because uh, some of the trucking um demand is going to railroads because railroads are less expensive. Um, they, they carry more loads per car and more per train, let's say. And um, they're cheaper as well in terms of fuel. Um, the other reason that transports or tra truckers will have a problem is because diesel prices are coming down. And this is, you know, counterintuitive, but when diesel prices are going up, transportation companies actually make more money because they build in a buffer uh, for increasing prices. And they pass on these costs to the end user, so to a Walmart or to a Costco. But when diesel prices are coming down, they can't really build in that buffer. So they're not exactly over earning. And therefore, that extra little boost that they get in their earning because of fuel prices going up, you know, it disappears. So all in all, you're absolutely right. I think there's a reason we look at the transportation index. It tells us a lot. And I think it's it's important to keep an eye out for all these things. Absolutely. Great points, Aisha. And uh, hopefully that uh, helps to address what you were talking about, Michael. And for everyone else that's listening, thanks again for tuning in. If you have a question, please request to be a speaker. We're more than happy to address any questions you all have. And what we're talking about today, where we're really looking at this macro data and trying to make it easier and more actionable, is what we do at Macrovisor. That's really the core of what we're trying to do is help people understand why this data can impact the economy and the market and how that may be an opportunity to put on trades or to make investments or otherwise. Just a quick question for you guys. Sure. Um, um, it's not a popular thought, but... 
could there be a deflationary crash here like 1929? Is that feasible, in your opinion? See, anything's feasible, as they say. Uh, but I think that's that's a that's a far-fetched thought at this point in time. I think that the bigger risk that we face, Michael, is actually a protracted period of stagflation, where inflation remains somewhat resilient, it doesn't get close to the Fed's goal, and the economy continues to weaken at the same time. And we're seeing some signs of that. For example, in ISM manufacturing, you know, prices are continuing to rise as orders are falling. And we see signs of that in other areas of the economy as well. We also see GDP for the first quarter coming in at 1.1%. And yet, arguably, for the first quarter, inflation is close to 5%. And so there, there is concerns here that we're getting closer to that period. Obviously, we're looking at GDP in real terms, so we can't yet say that stagflation. But it's closing in on that. And I think that is... Uh, a bigger worry is that we just have a period where inflation is structurally resilient while the economy remains somewhat weak. And if you think about some of the actions of what has been taken here by the Federal Reserve is raising rates here. Sure, it helps to taper demand. But what does it do to you if you're the CEO of a mining company? or an oil company, or an agricultural company, you're more likely to say, you know what, business conditions are weakening, the cost of capital is rising, wages are too expensive, our clients aren't placing as many orders, so we're going to slow down production. We might idle some fields, we might stop doing exploration. Last year was the worst year for oil field discoveries in almost 80 years. And so we can already see some of those cumulative impacts. So on the one side, you know, the Fed can can subdue demand because we do live in a debt-driven economy, right? And so a lot of people are borrowing to pull forward future demand. But with rates as high as they are, that's not really happening as much. Now more people are borrowing simply to make ends meet so that they can keep the lights on, keep paying rent, keep getting groceries. On the other side of it, however, when we look at production, this creates some structurally um, embedded problems for inflation that could be catalysts, particularly as we get into the next credit cycle, because there's nothing being done by companies or legislators to really ameliorate this issue. That is to say, all of this so-called relief, like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a bit ironically named, and I should even mention this, one of the goals is to reduce the cost of pharmaceuticals. So what did companies do? They front-loaded the cost of pharmaceuticals before the act takes effect. That's one example of how that can have an impact. But the other is that it's driving demand for resources, as is the Chips and Science Act. And what we really need is to drive demand for production, for more elasticity of supply. We're not seeing that from the government or from companies while the Federal Reserve continues to keep this tight monetary policy. And unfortunately for the supply side, that sets us up for the next business cycle, likely to be one where there is less elasticity of supply. So as demand normalizes, inflation can come back earlier, which may set us up for a shorter, more shallow credit cycle and bull market, but also could set us up for a period of that sort of stagflationary pressure becoming a little bit more resilient. So you're, you're thinking more of like a 1973-74 type of iteration than a 29 situation? That seems to be what is uh, the, the more likely scenario based on what I'm seeing so far in the data is that we're, we're not necessarily 
perilously close to, you know, some sort of massive disorderly deleveraging, more that we're pushing on the envelope of what current supply can provide. We've had 10 years of underinvestment in oil exploration. We've had similar trends in agriculture. We've got less arable soil. We've got less predictable weather conditions. So in aggregate, crop yields have been coming down in many parts of the world. In mining, we've got a very low supply of copper. If copper uh, demand starts to really come up, that's going to become an issue for the metal, pushing prices higher. And I think that that's kind of the core quandary here is that you know, we're not really resolving the problems that led us down this path. And, you know, rewinding all the way back to 2020, governments around the world pretty much shut down everything. And then they flooded the economy with money from central banks and from fiscal spending. And we're still living in the aftermath of those effects, which could have ripple impacts for years to come if we're not to try to stimulate supply. So in essence, yes, I think there's some parallels to the 70s, although there are also differentiators. And one of them is that we are still in an economy with a lot more debt now than we were then. There are some issues that could become more problematic um, in, in a sort of unwinding of what we're seeing versus what we saw during the 1970s. I don't know that it leads us to a sort of Great Depression style crash. I think it leads us more to the path of, yes, there's more room for the price of risk assets and, and even eventually real estate and other things to go lower. But I also think that we have... Um, probably a period that's going to be more of a, a very large kind of sideways chop. And if we look back at what we saw, for example, after the dot-com bust, there were probably six or seven head fakes of a new bull market where the NASDAQ rose 20% or more and the headlines were, oh, we're now in a new bull market again, only for the NASDAQ to make new lows. And then when it finally did base in 2003, it chopped sideways for 10 years. That's not an impossible scenario that we could see. And it is kind of similar to what we saw in the late 60s and through parts of the 70s, where the market really struggled to meaningfully move higher. I mean, it's a great point. I mean, I think the market started at in the beginning of the decade at 1,000, and it ended at 1,000. So it's a good point in terms of the 70s to the 1980s. Thank you. And thanks for the question. I think it's a really important one to talk about. And I think it's, you know, there's there's a lot of different scenarios that can play out. All we can really do is continue to watch the data, watch the market, pay attention to the details that might help us better model for what's to come. But just based on what we're seeing, we kind of see us going from an era of abundance to an era of scarcity, scarcity of capital, but also scarcity of resources, including labor. And look, labor is a big problem here, too. There's about 3 million Americans dying every year. We've got an ever-increasingly aging population. You have very low labor force participation. After every financial crisis that we've had, labor force participation has dropped further and further, starting with the dot-com bust and the great financial crisis and then COVID. There's, this time around, there's more folks that are retiring earlier, something Powell has spoken to with some degree of concern from the wealth effects that monetary policy has created. But the other issue is immigration. Quite frankly, we only have about a million immigrants coming in every year. Our population growth rate is just over about a million a year, um, maybe about two million a year after COVID. It's starting to rise. That's not necessarily enough to offset the ever-increasingly aging population, increased retirees, and unfortunately folks dying. And I think that's another concern that kind of keeps the labor situation uh, maybe a little bit more sticky, particularly as we get into the next growth cycle as an issue. 
So, folks, I want to thank everyone again for tuning in. If you do have a question, please don't hesitate to ask. We will be posting this recording on Twitter as well as on our podcasts, which you can find searching Macrovisor at any major podcast provider, Apple, Google, Amazon, etc. All right, so it doesn't seem like there are any questions there from the audience. So we'll start wrapping up here with closing thoughts. Aisha, I'd like to hand over the mic to you. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And um, look, oh, it seems like we have another question. Let's go ahead and get Ryan up here. Ryan, just yeah. give me a second to add you as a speaker here. All right, Ryan, what's your question for us? And thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Ryan, you too. We appreciate it. Hey, I just wanted to say uh, I appreciate all of your YouTube videos and everything you do for us. And uh, it's awesome that you put out all this free information. One of my uh, quick questions is, do you follow uh, Trueflation? And if so, uh, how much does that calculate into your like, ideas? Because when looking back at it over the last month or two, um, you would you would presume that uh, the CPI would have came out a little bit more skewed, but um, it didn't. So I was just kind of curious on how and if you use uh, Trueflation. Sure. Well, first, Ryan, I really want to thank you for your kind words and your support. We do try to put out a lot of free content. We believe that, you know, trying to share information and ideas is really the basis for where, you know, both Aisha and I joined Twitter. We really uh, we really like to try to help and share and also learn from other people. I do follow Trueflation's account. I haven't looked at their most recent data, so I may not be as familiar with it as you are. Um, but I would say that the, the number today wasn't particularly surprising to me. I did expect it to come in a bit higher than we saw in March. And overall, we did, particularly we'll look underneath the surface at some of the key areas of concern. And I think that, um, you know, this journey of disinflation is one that's going to be bumpy. It's, it's going to have sort of uneven, you know, journey lower. And I think we will see inflation continue to come down. But I think it's going to be kind of sticky in the three or four percent range. I don't know that we go to the Fed's two percent goal without a more meaningful recession. Aisha, I'm curious of your thoughts here as well. So I, I just looked up Trueflation's number. What they're saying is 3.73 percent. Is that right? Ryan, is that what you saw? Um, more so what I was going off of is uh, so you could see how their their lowest inflation number was just hit recently, and we were kind of uh, coming up from it. And you would assume that that lower number would have been put. It, it happened last month, so it would have been put into this CPI's um, like data calculation. So I was just kind of curious on how um, like it didn't affect it. I guess you could say or. Uh, so you, you're saying that it should have pulled the CPI number down further, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So look, <clears throat> I don't know how he calculates or how they calculate the trueflation number. But as I said earlier, I, I'm not sure if you were there when I was talking about the used car numbers. And so we see a lot of these other data points, right? So when we looked at the Mannheim index, when you look at, you know, shelter, when you look at rents, all of these things translate into the CPI number, but with different kinds of lags, right? So I was a bit 
off by a month when I was talking about the used car numbers. I thought it would come last month. So I am not actually super surprised that the number is around the 5% mark. Um, this is exactly where I thought it would be. In fact, it's lower than that, which is good. But I didn't think it was going to be much lower than that, honestly. All right, everyone. Well, we want to thank you all for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoy the content today. For more content like this, including our podcast, check out Macrovisor on Apple, Google, Amazon, or check out our Substack at macrovisor.com. We're regularly putting out free and premium content. And in closing, we just want to send everyone our best wishes. And I should, it sounded like you did have a closing thought there, perhaps, but then we had a question come up. So if you have anything else you want to share before we close out, please go ahead. We have another question. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Every time oh, we close out. Oh, he's gone. I, oh, well, if you, if you still want to ask a question, <laughs> we're more than happy to have you up here. Uh, you can just, you know, you can just request to be a speaker again. We're happy to take questions as they come up. Yeah, but, it's, it's fine. But um, we do appreciate everyone tuning in. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to have all of you all listening and being able to share our thoughts with you all. We really hope it was helpful. And again, if you caught this kind of midstream, there is a recording of this that will be posted on Twitter and on our podcast network. So thanks again, everyone. And Aisha, your closing thoughts. So my thoughts are a lot, uh, uh, you know, in line with, oh, here we go again. We, we Hold on. Okay. We hey, have Sol another question. We do. This is good. Hey, Solver, how's it going? What's the question you have for us? Appreciate it. Sorry for coming in so late. And if you want to end it the space, that's fine. I can probably tweet it to you and get a reply. But um, I was just curious, the, the regional banking, uh, quote unquote, crisis that's happening right now, I was wondering if the disinflationary pressures from the lending that would um, probably be dropping off of a cliff from that would... Uh, come into play in the near future and if that would have been something the market previously I considered in the inflation reading moving forward. So I was just curious your thoughts on that. Well, that's an excellent question. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely think that it will come into play and that's exactly what uh, the Fed is now counting on, right? So when they started their monetary policy tightening, let's say they don't always know how it's going to translate through the economy, right? So they tighten um, or they raise rates and they're doing QT, but they're not really sure which part of the economy breaks first. Now, it just so happened that the banks are breaking. And because of that, um, we're going to have tighter lending policies, much tighter than expected, let's say. And so that is definitely going to be translating into um, everything that we've already talked about, right? Lower credit, all of that. But as well, at the same time, it is going to translate into um, let's say deflationary forces, um, which is going to bring down inflation quite a bit. So you're absolutely right there. Now, <clears throat> here's the question, and, and that's, this is a really good question you ask, whether they expected it or not. So again, going back to what I started with, I don't think they expected this. For sure they didn't. If they did, they would have put a lot more, uh, you know, regulatory checks and balances in place. Some say the Fed did it on purpose. We don't know. But I don't think the Fed wants to see banks fail. I mean, that's the last thing anyone wants to see fail. So I think it, it's not, I don't think anybody has um, modeled this in as such. 
um, this particular issue, but I think they will be modeling it in going forward. And I'm sure this is definitely going to have a deflationary effect on the CPI or PCE, whichever number you want to look at. Yeah, I, thank I you think so much. You're welcome. And I think Aisha makes a really good point, which is really, you know, zooming out, we're in a debt driven economy. And if debt becomes harder to access and the cost of it is rising, then that is going to subdue consumption-driven demand. So that's going to have an impact on businesses, consumers, and even government alike, particularly at the local and state level. So I think that um, it, it does put more downward pressure on inflation as time goes on, without a doubt. That's a great question. I really appreciate it, y'all. Thanks for including me. I know it's late. Sorry about that. No, you're fine. We really appreciate the question and we appreciate you listening. And you said that you had missed some of it. So you will have a recording you can access just after we wrap up as well. And as we do wrap up here, Aisha, did you have some closing thoughts you want to share with our listeners here? Are, are we sure we don't have any more questions? <laughs> okay, round three. Let's try this again. Um, so no, I just... I just wanted to sum it all up saying, look, I, I'm really happy to see inflation coming down. I think this is great for all of us in many respects. But at the same time, I think we also need to remember what this means for companies and the economy, right? So it also means that revenues are coming down, margins are getting compressed, and therefore we need to be on our toes and we need to be vigilant about what's happening around us. Just quoting AI on a conference call 20 times doesn't mean anything. It means you'll have a one, two, three, four day move in your stock price, but then thereafter, what happens? So I'm not saying let's be super bearish and let's sell everything down, but what I am saying is let's be careful, okay? So not everything is as it seems. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say is the devil is in the details, right? So we... Although the inflation number overall came down, the reason that we wanted to explore this today is because we wanted to show you how we look at it, right? So we look at it line by line. In fact, you know, before this session, I downloaded the full details of every item, which is why I can tell you lettuce went up by a lot, right? Um, and I color code them and I make sure that we look at each number month on month, year on year, so that we know how this whole thing is moving. And it it still catches us by surprise, by the way, but it, it makes you a little bit more prepared um, than the average person, right? You know, and your mantra has been, the numbers always tell a story. And underneath the surface, whether we're looking at macroeconomic data or earnings or otherwise, the details are so important. So great thoughts there. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you uh, enjoyed this spaces. Look forward to many more to come. And uh, in closing, just want to say that I really am grateful to be a part of this FinTwit community, to be able to learn so much from so many and share everything that I've been able to learn as well. So very grateful for all of you. Thank you so much for tuning in.